evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15, 1929. He was killed almost 52 years ago on April 4, 1968, at the age of 39. He would have been 91 this year. After years of advocacy, the Martin Luther King Jr. federal holiday, commemorating King's birth, was signed into law and first observed on 1986 on the third Monday in January. In 1994, Congress passed the King Holiday and Service Act, designating the Martin Luther King Jr. federal holiday as a national day of service. The MLK Day of Service calls for Americans from all walks of life to work together to provide solutions to our most pressing national problems, of which we have many. For example, in this, the wealthiest country in the world, almost 39 million people live in poverty, with 17% of children in the U.S. living in poverty. It is also undisputed that the criminal justice system is, in actuality, a system of injustice where the white and wealthy are treated favorably and the poor and black and brown are treated more harshly. Another example is voting. Notwithstanding the enactment of the 15th Amendment in 1870 and the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, there are still efforts being made today to disenfranchise African Americans and prevent them from voting. And a final example is that the racial wealth gap continues to widen as a result of previous decades of government-sponsored and government-sanctioned programs specifically designed to hamper the economic progress of African Americans. While some improvements have been made in this country since Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his March on Washington, I Have a Dream speech in 1963, there is much work to be done. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and how his advocacy and fight against injustice continues to be relevant today. Joining us for this discussion, we have Ted Shaw, UNC School of Law, Julius L. Chambers, Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Civil Rights, and Dr. Jarvis Hall, NCCU Professor of Political Science. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Happy to be here. Thank you. So as we're discussing MLK's legacy, I'd like to first talk about how young he was and the amazing impact he made despite his youth. And so when he was 26, that's when he became president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. He was 33 when he penned the letter from Birmingham jail and gave his I Have a Dream speech. He was 34 when he received the Nobel Peace Prize and was named Man of the Year by Time magazine. He was 38 when he began speaking out against the Vietnam War and began organizing the Poor People's Campaign. And he was only 39 when he was killed a day after delivering his I Have Been to the Mountaintop speech. I'd like for both of you to kind of give your thoughts about 
the youth of King and, and how it was that he was able to make such a tremendous impact despite his youth. And Ted, let's start with you. Well, uh, I've often thought about the fact that Dr. King was 26 when he took on a leadership role in a Montgomery bus boycott uh, movement. Um, but I'm also conscious of the fact that uh, there are many people throughout history who have had a tremendous effect on the world uh, when they were uh, even younger than Dr. King. Um, the civil rights movement itself, of course, had many young people. Think about the Children's Crusade. Um, think about Birmingham and um, uh, some of the other places where young people played a leading role. Um, we have to think about um, whatever your religion is, the fact that Jesus Christ was 33 when he was crucified and many other people who uh, used their time well and then were gone at a very young age. But no doubt about it, he had a tremendous impact. Uh, Malcolm was 39 when he was assassinated. Uh, we can point to many more people, but he, he uh, had a tremendous impact uh, on the United States and the world during his, his lifetime. And he didn't wait uh, to do it. He led at a young age. Yeah, yeah there's, a long, there's a long list of uh, young people who, uh, who uh, took it upon themselves, you know, to get involved in uh, whatever movement or cause uh, existed at that time. Um, in fact, as a, as a professor, I try to use that to encourage my students, you know, to become involved because these were young people, very idealistic. Uh, some would argue uh, don't have as much responsibility. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not. But but it they have more latitude, more more freedom, if you will, more space in order to do things and to think about a different reality than what might exist. And so that gives somewhat of an inherent advantage to young people in terms of getting involved. But again, it's also a motivating factor because we uh, want our young people to uh, begin to take up the mantle to uh, lead us into the next uh, generation of change. Uh, if I may, I, it's also appropriate to mention someone else who was engaged in the civil rights movement, particularly appropriate to mention him now. And that was John Lewis, who was 19 years old uh, when he took on a leadership role in the civil rights movement, young, a young Turk. Um, and it's appropriate, of course, because we know now that he's dealing with stage four cancer. Um, and uh, John Lewis is beloved. Uh, but as a teenager, um, started his impact on the United States and, and the world beyond. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that during that uh, era, uh, that there was a different sense of urgency among young people. Uh, this was a time when uh, many African Americans were just beginning college. Uh, and uh, were placed in a position that they could examine where they were in life and also where it was that they uh, sought to go, uh, the kind of uh, progress that they thought that uh, the educational sphere would offer to them. And I think that many people recognized at that time 
that the doors weren't open. Uh, and that kind of created a different sense of urgency among uh, the young crew, and starting with the uh, Greensboro Ford, A&T uh, Ford, uh, February 1st, 1960, with the uh, sit-in uh, movement uh, there. Uh, so uh, King kind of followed that, uh, that tradition. And even though he was really in age, chronologically, a little older, than mm-hmm. some of the other, you know, the Snickers and mm-hmm. uh, core uh, uh, people. He was young in his profession as a minister, having obtained his uh, doctorate degree and then going down to uh, Montgomery, uh, where everything was dumped in his lap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with respect to his contact with what I call the real world, he was very young. Mm-hmm. And in the, I guess, the... Uh, uh, same area as uh, John Lewis at 19, uh, that, uh, you know, he would become uh, in a point of reckoning uh, with uh, what he saw lying ahead of him and then the mantle that was placed on uh, his shoulder, shoulder shoulders uh, to uh, be in a leadership role. And, of course, the story in Montgomery is that one reason he was uh, selected as the head of the Montgomery Improvement Association was because he was young. And and it's argued that the city fathers had not had an opportunity to to put their hands on him uh, and to control him um, in that way. So, again, he had more political space in order to operate. And And came without the baggage baggage that uh, (laughs) some of the ministers and others in Montgomery had with respect to their relationships with one another. Mm-hmm. Which was one of the virtues of uh, youth at that mm-hmm. time, because at that time you don't carry the same fear. You know, you mm-hmm. haven't uh, uh, sustained the same wounds, mm-hmm. and you're not healing from uh, the same kinds of uh, 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 oppression that uh, that they uh, had accepted up to uh, up to that time. So uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, right on time for him. And so when we look at the Montgomery bus boycott, what does that, what can we learn from that in terms of his legacy and how that experience kind of shaped what he did subsequent to that? Well, I think about, uh, in response to that question, there's a lot we could say, but one of the things I think about is that at least uh, those of us who are um, lawyers, law professors, um, I think it's important to understand what I think is the appropriate relationship between activists and lawyers. Um, Martin Luther King, as we know, wasn't a lawyer. He was a minister. Um, And there came a time when, after the civil rights movement of the 60s, uh, what we were left with was all these laws, and those who worked on civil rights issues subsequently did important work, but began to think that the law was um, the way uh, to uh, pursue civil rights. It's an important way, but uh, the Montgomery bus boycott is a good example of what I think the appropriate relationship is between lawyers and activists. Um, And it was the activists who led that movement. The lawyers played an important role. It was the decision by the Supreme Court uh, uh, about the bus boycott that ended the bus boycott. Um, but uh, it was activists, and we shouldn't forget that. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and others were activists. Uh, that's important. Yeah, I think it, it introduced a, 
a new front for the civil rights movement. Activism has always been a part of the black experience in terms of resisting racism and white supremacy. Uh, but in the post-World War II period, it, uh, it really began to uh, flourish. I mean, even as early as uh, the March on Washington movement in 1941 with A. Philip Randolph showing a march that didn't happen, but showed the role that activism could play in terms of moving the federal government um, in the person of uh, of uh, Franklin Roosevelt as president to, you know, to do something, to respond and respond in a positive way. And so it showed the role that ordinary people, because when you look at who uh, man and woman, the uh, uh, movement at the time, it, these were ordinary people. And uh, uh, yes, you had the leadership. They had a hierarchy. Uh, somewhat of a hierarchy, uh, but it was because of the participation uh, of the uh, of the maids and the janitors and the mechanics, as well as the teachers and the ministers and the lawyers uh, that made that movement uh, uh, work so successfully in Montgomery and subsequent to that. Now, Jarvis, when you mentioned the role of activism, it made me think about King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And so there were, of course, arguments that he was moving too fast. And so this letter was his response to that. Can you both comment on King's perspective about taking it slower and his refusal to do so? Well, it, it, that's encapsulated in just as delayed as just as denied, uh, which he talked about in the letter. Uh, and uh, he said, why we can't wait? We've been waiting for 400 years. <laughs> and so uh, 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 he also said in the letter, wait almost, almost always means never. And he, he understood that, that uh, um, um, and just as Irv said earlier, there was a certain urgency at that time that change is needed and change is needed now. And so I think he expressed that in, uh, in ways that uh, uh, few others have been able to do in the letter from Birmingham jail. And uh, so uh, waiting strategically can have its value, you know, but in the situation of uh, black folk in the South as well as other parts of the country at that time, there was a sense of urgency that change had to take place and it had to t and it had to take place now. You hear the chance on the streets now, you know, uh, you know, change now or peace now, you, and uh, 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 so change has to has to be immediate. I think one of the great ironies uh, that I think about, Jarvis, um, uh, you're absolutely right, of course, about King saying uh, now and the Birmingham white community saying it's it's too much too fast uh, but one of the great ironies is that uh, a lot of people either don't know this never knew it forget it uh, King himself uh, was criticized harshly by um, many of the younger um, black activists uh, you mentioned uh, SNCC Irving and um, many others uh, were very critical of him and mocked him and ridiculed him, um, thought that he was uh, too slow himself, and, of course, were critical of nonviolence. Uh, we tend to think, we collectively uh, tend to think of King as somebody who uh, had the support of everybody in the civil rights movement he didn't, and he was not 
the leader of the civil rights movement. It was a, a, a raucous, roiled uh, movement when, in which there was a lot of disagreement. It's only in hindsight that King was anointed as the leader of the civil rights movement by many people who really don't know a lot about the history of that movement. Well, you know, what you had at that time was, you know, and Jarvis talked about activism, but that was kind of embedded in youth, uh, youth in the street, uh, youth on, uh, on campuses, uh, and it was a non-religious movement. Uh, King came along and uh, introduced the church uh, or portions of the church as a viable instrument of advocacy and activism. And uh, the church community wasn't ready uh, for that. And so by the time he got to the letter uh, from the Birmingham jail, which he was writing to white people, uh, although, you know, Ted, you mentioned the uh, lack of support uh, that he had from among some African-Americans and some African-American uh, preachers Ministers too. Who, That's right. who, who thought that he was radical the young people were the ones who were ahead of him in terms of uh, the kind of a socialist uh, approach that uh, that they were moving toward at that time. So King was kind of like in a middle space, you know. Uh, and uh, while he was progressive to some, uh, he was a uh, 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 slow drag uh, to uh, to others. But uh, I see we're gonna have to take our break uh, right now. So. I want you to stay with us as we continue this conversation about uh, Martin Luther King in preparation for uh, the uh, King holiday uh, tomorrow. So we'll be right back. Okay, we're back on the Legal Review, uh, we are discussing uh, the King legacy and uh, the uh, continuing impact and influence of the uh, King movement. Dr. Jarvis Hall, who is a uh, professor of political science here at North Carolina Central University School of Law, uh, University, not the School of Law yet. Uh, he's on his way. He promoted me. We have, an honor, <laughs> we have an honorary degree for you. And then a, uh, a real law professor, a uh, real law professor, uh, Professor uh, Ted Shaw uh, from uh, the UNC uh, School of Law and is the, the director of the Center for Civil Rights and is the Julius Chamber uh, Distinguished Professor uh, of Law. I uh, really worthy title uh, that we have here in, in North Carolina uh, for someone who worked with uh, with Dr. King. Uh, so we were talking about just the uh, impact. Um, from your perspective, because you know, we're a little older uh, now than we were then, and uh, certainly I was older, wondering where that was going. <laughs> older than, than, than our students, but what is your perception of how the young generation perceives King and what do they see as the legacy and impact and continuing influence of the uh, the King history? 
most of my students, are, they're aware of King. They're aware that we have this national observance in January. And because of that, that rekindles their attention to King every year. So, so it's not as if we think about King at one point and then we forget him for five years, you know. But because we have this annual observance, they think about King. And it depends upon what community, what classes they're in as to how they think about King. Uh, uh, some classes actually require students to uh, to read uh, the letter from Birmingham jail, for example. And many of my students are familiar with that and familiar with the basic themes of, of the letter from Birmingham jail. And, of course, they're all familiar with um, the uh, March in Washington speech in 63. You know, I have a dream, very optimistic uh, type thing. Uh, what I always point out, though, uh, because I have my students uh, read uh, Beyond Vietnam, uh, uh, the drum major instinct, uh, because I want them to know about service and the letter from Birmingham jail, because in especially the le- uh, the uh, speech which was given uh, a year to the day, I believe, before his assassination, uh, in the Beyond Vietnam speech. Is uh, not as optimistic at all, you know, and it talks about many of the shortcomings of America itself in terms of meeting its ideals. And so that's what I think is missing is the critique that King offered for American society and the fact that he talked about the importance of a revolution of values uh, uh, and 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 the, the fact that uh, materialism, racism, and militarism were the twin, the uh, triple evils, uh, because as a society, we've never really come to grips with that. And so they are aware of King, obviously. They hold him in high esteem. They revere him. But in terms of knowing the complete King, uh, that's where our young people may be missing it. And part of that is our, for our generation's fault in terms of what we uh, talk about and, and whatnot. Well, I, I think um, uh, I would go back and add the speech that's now called the I Have a Dream speech uh, to your list of speeches they should read in their entirety because uh, it's been boiled down to this, uh, this kind of uh, dreamer's speech. But that speech itself started it is, out it with right. a... Yeah, a criticism yeah. Not sufficient funds. of America. That's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Bounce check, insufficient mm-hmm. funds. Uh, you know, America uh, betraying its promises to African Americans. You know, and those of us who know the history of the speech know there was that moment in the speech where he left his uh, his prepared remarks and. Mahalia Jackson, you know, said, tell him about the dream, Martin. And that's when he started what we know is that I have a dream speech, which he had given before on a number of occasions, including in Detroit, not long before that at Cobalt Hall. Um, and in Rocky Mount. Uh, yeah. That's right, in Rocky Mount. That's yeah. right. And, and, and so the, the point being that, uh, you know, he's been boiled down to that speech that day, that feel-good stuff um, by many people in this country uh, when in fact he had a harsh critique of American racism and, as you say, um, militarism as well as uh, economic injustice. It's important that people know that. Uh, the king that we have now, I often say uh, because he's now long been safely dead, has been turned into something much more toothless. 
than he was, at least in my view. Um, and we have to keep reminding our uh, young people about this iconic figure and who he really was. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at King's writings and his positions and we apply them to our circumstances today, how would, based on what he has said, how would he critique where we are right now? Would he be disappointed that we're not further? Would he feel like this is appropriate progress? What are, what are your thoughts about that? Well, not the king who lived. Mm-hmm. You know, Which is who we're, yes, let's talk right. about the king who lived. Let's that's set right. the record straight. Uh, you know, some people try to hijack his legacy and, and turn him into something he wasn't. But the king who lived, he'd be very uh, upset about what we're seeing these days, um, the resurgence of racism, um, economic inequality, uh, you know, militarism. Uh, He would have had a good deal to say about all of these things, and uh, I think he would have been very unhappy. Now, I always add that um, Martin Luther King wouldn't have lived to be 93 or anything close to it or 90 years old. It just wouldn't have happened. Uh, you know, his, uh, you know, the autopsy report, the doctor said that he had a heart that was about triple the size of an ordinary heart for a man his age. Uh, all that stress would have taken him. Uh, and I think uh, Yolanda King, Yoki King, Uh, You know, she died of heart disease, um, and I think it was probably something that was inherited. Um, uh, So, uh, you know, that we—he would have never gotten here. But if he were here, um, you know, he'd be heartbroken and angry about what's going on today, as many of us are. I would agree, and and you laid it out in your introduction, April. Uh, when you talked about uh, the issues of poverty and criminal justice and voter suppression and the racial uh, wealth gap, uh, all of those things were things that I believe King will offer a real critique for. Uh, uh, But he has um, been hijacked uh, by even some conservatives and uh, uh, moderates and what have you um, uh, because they talk about I have a dream and the content of your character uh, and uh, uh, use it against affirmative action for exactly exactly yeah yeah yeah, you know but but especially when we think about uh, King's latter years in terms of his public pronouncements because I would argue that he had always been concerned with these issues but uh, uh, 65, 66, 67, 68, he began to talk about economics and he began to talk about the importance of, um, of spreading the movement to the north uh, when he went to Chicago. And he began to uh, uh, to talk about uh, issues of poverty. In fact, that was the last thing that he was try- trying to pull together was the uh, Poor People's Campaign. And, of course, we know that he was in Memphis to uh, uh, work on issues uh, for the— um, uh, the garbage workers in Memphis. And, and so he knew that economics was the next frontier. And I would argue, 
as would many, that that's something that was always on his agenda. Yeah. Uh, but he, he certainly brought it to the fore during the latter few years of his life. And that's what we should have taken up and carried forward. And I think that many of the issues that we are now confronted with would not be so dire. Uh, no. Yeah, I, I dare say that, uh, you know, the Martin Luther King who lived, he would be in Durham today mm-hmm. talking about this crisis um, with public housing, mm. um, you know, and speaking on behalf of those residents who were displaced. Um, you know, he would have been uh, doing a lot of the work that um, we see, well, he was the inspiration for a lot of the work that Reverend Barber is mm-hmm. doing now mm-hmm. and others. And so it's not like his legacy is his true legacy, not the not the fake, phony, talking about fake news, the phony <laughs> legacy that has been created um, for him or about him. Uh, but his true legacy has been picked up by many people. But we have so many issues um, these days that have betrayed um, his life's work. You know, I, I think that, you know, as, as I'm, I'm reflecting back on his life, much of it was uh, without legal protections that subsequently became law. Uh, 1964 was the Civil Rights Act passage. 1965 was the uh, passage of the Voting Rights uh, act in 1968 was uh, his uh, his assassination. So during much of his life, the uh, legal protections that we allegedly enjoy uh, were not there and uh, did not shield him or offer really a whole lot of hope. And I think the uh, both the passage of the, 60, uh, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act kind of created a kind of a false promise. Uh, because you say now there's a law in place and we can kind of, but then you look at, begin to look at then the contradictions uh, between the law and the, uh, and the reality. And we are caught up now today in those contradictions between the law and the reality because the reality is that materially our condition hasn't changed significantly. Uh, since uh, the uh, early King days, although we have bigger cars, better cars, <laughs> uh, better suits. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, when you look at where we are as a people, uh, there hasn't been uh, significant progress. It's only his assassination, as we know, um, that uh, paved the way for the enactment of the Fair Housing Act of 1968, Uh, his assassination and the violence after that. Um, I know, um, Professor Dawson, that you are the uh, asking the questions here, but I thought it might be worthwhile also to think about um, issues of gender and the civil rights movement and Dr. King's life. Uh, Because the civil rights movement, as powerful and important as it was, um, and in spite of all of the women who were the backbone of the civil mm-hmm. rights movement, uh, the movement itself, and with all due respect to Dr. King and many of the other ministers, etc., cetera, um, it was still mired as the rest of the country was with, with uh, or in, I should say, sexism. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that's one of the things that if he were alive today, he would see um, uh, a lot of difference in. You know, the Me Too movement uh, of today is something that uh, he didn't quite um, see in his lifetime. And I appreciate you you bringing up that point, and and I think it's completely appropriate and right that when we talk about King's legacy and we're able to do it every year, we're able to reflect on it, that we don't just limit it to um, what King himself did because, of course, he didn't do it alone. And there were many people and many women, you know, if we're talking about women of the movement who don't get the the accolades that they certainly deserve. Ella Baker is, you know, right there at the top mm-hmm. of the list. Uh, Fannie Lou Fanny Hamer. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, so I, I really appreciate you. Um, yes. And any other questions that you have or points that you want to make, <laughs> feel, feel free, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 the backbone of the civil rights movement was the women. Yeah, of course. You know, whether you're talking about SNCC or CORE mm-hmm. or whatever, you the know. Montgomery bus boy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, all, yeah. all yeah. of that, basically. I mean, the men had the profile, mm-hmm. you know, but the work was done uh, by the women. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we wouldn't be here in terms of struggle for us, for instance, without Ella Baker mm-hmm. and yeah. her genius because she uh, mm-hmm. uh, basically created, what, three... Four different organizations, NAACP, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, CORE, mm-hmm. uh, SCLC. I mean, yeah, she was Smith. the backbone yeah. in the creation mm-hmm. of, uh, of all of those. All those names that come to mind, uh, you know, Septima Clark and, um, as we've already uh, indicated, the women in the Montgomery Bus Boy Company. But once you start calling those names, uh, if we're honest in our discussions, you can't stop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and part of it, too, is... Uh, it goes back to something that you mentioned earlier, Irv, in terms of the role of the church, because as we know, in the church, what, what's the backbone of the church is, is women. Is, is women. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was something, Ted, that you said about the intersection between activism and, and the law, and you mentioned the assassination of King and how that spurred the uh, Fair Housing Act, uh, and that that in all likelihood would not have happened certainly at that moment in time, except that King had been assassinated. Do you see that being the case as well when we're looking at the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in terms of what was going on in the movement really pushing, you know, the government to get to the point where they would enact this legislation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the Fair Housing Act had been bottled up in uh, Congress. Uh, they wouldn't move on it, as we know. Um, but every pe- major piece of civil rights legislation or every civil rights advance um, uh, we have to was bought and paid for with blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we think about uh, the Montgomery bus boycott, and we can't um, not think about what had happened the year before. Uh, you know, Montgomery bus boycott was 56, I think. Um, and the year before that, of course, you know, a young black man's um, death in Mississippi, uh, you know, had a lot to do to change the atmosphere and set the stage for 
resistance. And the same thing is true. 64 Civil Rights Act, we have to think about 63 and, um, you know, um, uh, Mississippi, uh, you know, Freedom Summit in Mississippi and Schwinn and Cheney and Goodman and 65, the, uh, you know, Bloody Sunday and the Voting Rights Act. You know, we, we have to recognize that everything was bought and paid for in blood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 63, that was also the bombing of the 16th That's Street right, Baptist 16th, Church. Right. You know? Which, which Martin Luther King was, was so despondent about, understandably. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the worst deeds in, um, in the history of the civil rights movement and in American history generally. Yeah, I think it pointed out, too, that the uh, racial order, uh, white supremacy, was, it was not as it was in the minds of certain people, just a, a benign, even though uh, whacked kind of system, that it was undergirded and, and enforced by violence. And and so when it was really challenged, we saw uh, violence, you know, uh, 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 the church bombings, uh, the murders, all, all these kind of things, I think, shook America because they thought... Yeah, we have those races down there, but the black folk are happy, the white folk are happy. That's the way they lived uh, 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 all their years, you know. But it was undergirded and enforced by a, a sense of violence. If you got too far out of line, you'd be brought back in violently. That and, was the story yeah. of slavery. Mm-hmm. Right, right. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Ted Shaw, the UNC Julius L. Chambers Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Civil Rights, and Dr. Jarvis Hall, NCCU Professor of Political Science. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris, a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Although the laws that prohibit workplace discrimination are decades old, workplace discrimination still remains a serious issue. Discrimination refers to the unfair treatment of a person based on that person's race, age, sex, nationality, religion, or disability. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a federal law that prohibits employers from discriminating against employees on the basis of sex, race, color, national origin, and religion. The law generally applies to employers with 15 or more employees, but also extends to colleges, universities, employment agencies, and labor organizations. Title VII forbids discrimination in any aspect of employment. If you feel that you have been discriminated against in your workplace, there are several steps you may take to protect your rights. First, review your company's policy to determine how and where you may report discriminatory practices. Second, keep a personal record of the discriminatory practices. Finally, you may reach out to an attorney or file a charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, also known as the EEOC. More information is at eeoc.gov. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasia Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal 
uh, review, want to remind you that uh, tomorrow is uh, the MLK Day of Service. And uh, we hope that you have already planned uh, your activities uh, for, uh, for tomorrow and that you will be engaged in worthwhile efforts uh, to help uh, build up uh, the community, not just for tomorrow, but for uh, thereafter. Uh, there are many things that uh, we can do and should do. Uh, McDougal Terrace is something that is very uh, evident uh, in our local uh, community uh, here, and I'm sure that they can use a lot of help, but there are other issues uh, as well. And we're talking about the legacy of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and how it became, got to become a uh, day of uh, service. Uh, Professor Ted Shaw who is the Jewish Chamber's Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law and is the uh, Director of the Center for Civil Rights. Dr. Jarvis Hall, who is the uh, Professor of Political Science here at North Carolina Central University, are our guests, and we appreciate uh, their being here, and we know that they will be uh, engaged in their uh, service activities tomorrow uh, as, uh, as well. Uh, King uh, had a book uh, with the title of uh, Where Do We Go From Here? Uh, and I, I pose that to uh, each of you. Where, <laughs> where do we go uh, from here in light of the fact that many of the uh, problems that existed back in 1950s, 1960s are still with us uh, today? And uh, some people see that as evidence that there has been no progress. Others uh, see it as uh, kind of a shifting and successes uh, in the way. So to our experts here, uh, uh, where, do, where do we go from here? Well, you know, I was thinking back about the days in which uh, I'm, I don't think I'm being presumptuous in saying, you know, the four of us in this room tonight, uh, we all were uh, pushing for a national holiday. Um, I remember being on the mall for a number of years, uh, you know, pushing for that. I remember um, uh, Stevie Wonder's uh, song yeah. that he yeah. wrote, um, you know. Happy uh, birthday. That's mm -hmm. right, happy birthday. And I can remember so much more. But I also think about one of the biographers of uh, Martin Luther King, wrote about the last um, of his birthdays in which he was alive. And some of the workers on his staff, Dorothy Cotton, I think, primarily, you know, she brought in a cake. But they were in a meeting planning a campaign. That's what they were doing. And mm -hmm. he was working on his last birthday. You know, he wasn't taking time off to celebrate his birthday. Um, and neither should we. I mean, we should commemorate his birthday, but honor him in continuing to work and and to struggle. You know, to continue his struggle. So that's that's the thing that I think um, we ought to be doing, one way or another. Um, we have a nobody has mentioned his name, but we have an occupant of the White House who is as blatantly racist as anybody who sat in that office, not that he was the first racist, right, that's right. Um, uh, but uh, as anyone. Um, you know, and that just underscores 
uh, where we are. Yes, we've made tremendous progress. We've had um, tremendous progress. It's, you know, you think about the fact that we've, it's not that this is the be all and end all, but we have had an African-American elected president twice. Um, something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime and that he never saw. Um, but that's not Nirvana. Uh, you know, we, we've been taking a lot of steps backwards. I mean, there's a lot that we have to do in this struggle. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, too, part of the subtitle of that book is uh, the binary yeah. choice that he offered, chaos yeah. or community. community. Chaos <laughs> or community. Yeah, you know, so, um, and I think he was very prophetic in that, you know, because the, those were the choices, but it also, I think, uh, establish the uh, the range of things that could happen, and within that, there's a lot of middle ground. And uh, but when you look at where we are right now, uh, from from the time that he wrote the book, and just as Ted said, especially with the political situation the way it is, the tremendous division that exists, and what really bothers me tremendously is the assault on truth. Mm. I mean, to me, that is a that's a fundamental issue. You know, nobody's going to know what the truth is anymore. And if you don't know what the truth, if you can't agree on what the truth (laughs) is and what the facts are, then how are we going to advance as a community at all? And so uh, and I'm not sure how we repair this because the occupant of the White House and I'm not going to mention his name <laughs> but the yeah. current occupant of the White House has done so much damage and not by himself that's right you know he's just been a symptom of it or he's been able to take advantage of right. this wave or whatever you want to call it but uh I'm not sure how we repair this dedic- this uh respect uh, for the truth anymore, and uh, uh, because he is, he along with others have done so much damage to it, and and the distrust that comes with that. You know. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and so when we think about Ted, as you noted, we had a black president who was elected twice, and now we have the current occupant who is the polar opposite. And I can't help but think about. King's uh, quote where he says the arc of the moral universe is long but Mm -hmm. bends towards justice. And so does that quote resonate with you? Is there a sense of of some optimism, despite the fact that we're in the situation that we're currently in, that uh, he was correct, that that it bends towards justice? You you know, I'm I'm so glad you said that because so many of us hang on to that notion of the moral arc of the universe being long but bending toward justice. And I believe in it, but I also believe in it because um, I've come, I've said this many times, um, uh, but I think many of us believe this, that uh, I've come to believe in hope because the alternative is 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 death. Um, you know, hope isn't something that comes to us serendipitously or uh, because we're naive. It's It's a choice. You know, um, it's a choice about what we believe and what we'll work for, even in the face of the realities that Mm -hmm. are ugly um, and that could cause us to despair. Uh, But we have to choose hope. That's I I don't I don't think that's corny. I don't think it's um, uh, it's naive. I think it's a choice because anything else um, means that we lay down and die and we can't do it. We have no other choice. But. We have hope, we choose hope, and then we work to make hope reality. 
Well, you know, that's, that's been the history of African-Americans uh, in this country, mm-hmm. is that no matter how uh, long the beatdown occurs, <laughs> there is always the hope that uh, tomorrow is going to be better. And we can go all the way back to the days of enslavement uh, to uh, to see uh, that uh, being uh, born out, uh, doing Reconstruction, and right on up to the second Reconstruction, uh, or third Reconstruction, as some uh, would uh, would say, uh, that there is hope. Uh, and if we didn't have hope, then that speaks to this notion of chaos our community. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, because it is only through hope that you move toward the community side mm-hmm. rather than to the uh, chaos side as, 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 as close as many people are to that, uh, that chaos side. Yeah, black folk have always been able to make a way out of no way. I mean, I mean that's, that's always been the case. Uh, but I have hope when I see uh, many of our students, our young people, mm-hmm. actually engaged and uh, talking about issues and planning to address issues. But also, I wish they would combine that with looking back at uh, how we have been able to get as far as we've been able to get. I mean, with all of the challenges, with all of the roadblocks uh, that have been put in front of uh, black folk, we still here. <laughs> and and that wasn't always promised at, at the one point. Uh, I marvel sometimes just walking around this campus when you think about the uh, challenges that Shepard and and all of those had in, in, in establishing the campus and, and keeping it going and keeping the doors open. And it's still here. Yeah. And yeah. so so we need to be forward looking, you know, because uh, our young people need our assistance. But we also need to go ahead and give uh, the baton to them to go on to take us to the next phase. But at the same time, we need to look back and see uh, what has uh, brought us this um I'm trying to think of an appropriate gospel song to <laughs> to say this, but but uh, uh, um, how we've gotten so far uh, uh, along the way, out of some song like that. There, right? there is a song. I got over. That's right. I got over. There you go. Yeah, right. but you know, you, you're right. We need young people. Yeah. And you know, it's young people who created this Black Lives yeah, yeah. Matter movement. Even though for decades, as long as we can think of, we can think of. Uh, black lives not mattering mm-hmm. uh, to so many people. Well, the other thing I was thinking about, I, I read um, um, Fona's, uh, um, what was it, not Fona's, Blight's biography of Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. uh, recently. Mm-hmm. And think about Frederick Douglass and black Americans in, in uh, 1857. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there were free black Americans then, and mm-hmm. along comes... Uh, you know, Dred Scott, which says even free black Americans can't be citizens. Think about that moment. Frederick Douglass, who had escaped from slavery, being told that he could never be a citizen. What a moment to despair. Uh, but, um, you know, that didn't rule the day. That's Martin Luther King's uh, moral arc of the universe, mm-hmm. uh, in spite of a horrible civil war and everything else that followed in, in the you know, Reconstruction era. Uh, we have to believe in uh, the necessity of struggle, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as Frederick Douglass told us mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Without struggle, there is no progress. Progress, that's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So Amen. Uh, <laughs> uh, timely uh, message. It was a timely message then, and it's a timely message uh, 
today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we uh, we appreciate uh, all, all of that. How do you account for, well, let me just phrase it another way, the impact of the commercialization of the King legacy? Uh, we've heard it leading up to uh, this holiday. You know, on uh, television, there is this constant reminder to, I have a dream. And that is the Martin Luther King of we shall overcome or uh, other side, uh, we have overthrown, uh, whichever one uh, it is. But what impact does that have on the psychic of people as they look at the struggle on one hand and they're being reminded that, well, you've already overcome. But didn't we know when we were uh, advocating and marching for a King holiday um, didn't we know that many people would turn it into mattress sales and uh, you know other opportunities for the capitalism that he critiqued? We knew that would come, and of course that's happened. I mean that's that's America um, for us. Um, or in the days of the late '60s, uh, some people the <laughs> America <laughs> uh, uh, So that's that's not a surprise, uh, mm-hmm. but it 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 has happened. It's more incumbent upon us, even more incumbent uh, upon us, to talk about um, the failures and the shortcomings of unconstrained, unrestrained uh, market capitalism, and the importance of not worshiping at that. Uh, altar, mm-hmm. and to drag ourselves back to um, what King's life was all about. You know, we we absolutely have to do that. And I think it, ha- it has a functional role uh, in the maintenance of uh, the economic slash slash racial uh, slash gender order, uh, in the sense of pacifying uh, more. Radical critiques, you know, more militant action, um, because right now, if you if you if you're king like, that means you again you have this optimism and you know and and you want to love everybody and yes, love is important, agape love, unconditional love, but at the same time, it's 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 a love that would at sometimes. Uh, I might have to shake you in order to get you to do the right thing. And if we transfer that to the real world, it means you might have to shake society in order to get it to do the right thing. That's loving society because the uh, uh, the uh, um, uh, motto or, or or the theme of, of SCLC was to redeem the soul of America, not just mm-hmm. black America, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so um, we... we, we uh, have to get to a point where we understand the full king. Uh, that's a thing that we've talked about here. Uh, the way you talk about the lived king, mm-hmm. <laughs> the one that lived as opposed to the one that has been invented. You, you know. But again, I think it plays a functional role in making sure everything stays a little peaceful and, you know, and things are not pushed as much as it should be. You know. But we need to yeah. uh, combat that. And what you're talking about really is the the core of um, patriotism mm-hmm. on the part of black Americans who have loved this country critically. Critical, that's you know, right. Not blindly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are others who claim to be patriots um, who claim to love this country, but it's a blind patriotism. It's a fake or not a real patriotism, in my view, at least. 
um, but black people have loved this country critically uh, for what it could and should be, not just what it was or especially in spite of what it was. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, we are out of time. But but before we go, we want to thank both of you for not just your service on MLK Day of Service, but we know the work that you all have done throughout your careers and, and just want to thank you. And you all are shining examples and models for what it is that we all aspire or should aspire to do. Uh, and that goes for my wonderful host as well. And for you, too. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, yeah, you all um, serve as an example for, for me, um, our students, and I'm sure the community as well. And uh, we'd like to thank you, Professor Ted Shaw, the Julius Chambers Distinguished Professor of Law at UNC School of Law and Director of the Center for Civil Rights, and Dr. Jarvis Hall, NCCU Professor of Political Science. And as always, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. If you have any comments about the show or if you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And in addition to listening on Sunday at 7 p.m. on WNCU, you can also find this show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.